Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, the place to get to know the people of Austin and find out how they became the people of Austin. I'm your host, Bob Morse, and sitting on a mountaintop not far from here is Mr. Joel McCall. Well, hardly a mountain, not like our guest uh, today. I can yeah. tell you, but how are you doing, Bob? Good, how about you? Doing fine, doing fine, hoping for a little rain today. Yeah, well... I'm kind of excited about our guest today because I think this is going to be a great learning experience for both you and I. I mean, I, you know, uh, I don't know much about this business, but I think we're getting ready to find out about it. So with that coming to us from uh, somewhere deep in the woods in Colorado <laughs> is Mr. Dan Garrison. How you doing, Dan? Hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm on a- this COVID thing has been a real son of a bitch for, for all of America. But for me, it's given me a chance to go take a vacation for the first time in about five years. So I'm up here with my family and friends, and we're having a great time hiking the mountains and enjoying the, the nature up here in Colorado and Crested Butte. Cool. Nice. Right, so well, I'm glad we could do that for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so. so, okay, Garrison Brothers Bourbon, let's just jump right in. Did you give any thought to doing sanitizers like so many distillers have? Uh, we did. We produced about 25,000 gallons of hand sanitizer for first responders and for churches and for um, kids clinics and, and, and medical clinics in the Gillespie County, uh, Blanco County area. Um, also, for we had police. It was kind of it was kind of a cool situation. We had policemen driving in from West Texas to get it because they were running out. Nobody had hand sanitizer at the time. We never charged for it, but we did set up a little fund me, GoFundMe uh, operation yeah. so that anybody that wanted some hand sanitizer and wanted to pay for it, we're not going to charge them for it because we're just doing what we think is best for, for the world, right? It's, it's, it's totally philanthropic. Sure. So instead, what we did is we set up this little GoFundMe page, and anybody that wanted to donate, whether it was $5 or $10 or $50 or $1,000, could go to that, that site and make a donation. And I think about $3,000 was raised for the production of hand sanitizer. We actually spent about 25000 of our own money producing the hand sanitizer. So well, that, was, that was called Wash Your Damn Hands? Is that what I saw? It's called, it's called Wash Your Damn Hands. And you know what? I'd do it again tomorrow because I had the I had the honor and privilege of walking into churches and old folks' homes and uh, uh, clinics and handing this stuff out to everybody. The hospitals, Seton Hospital in Austin, uh, Dell Hospital in Austin, they all got hand sanitizer, and I got to deliver it to them. And I'd get big hugs and kisses from everybody while I was there, so it was really, really a nice a nice thing, thing to do and a fun thing to do. It was great for me. It was very rewarding. That's awesome. Cool. So tell us how you got into the uh, bourbon business. Um, I was working in software back in 2001 when the internet bubble exploded and I had um, a couple thousand shares in a pretty pretty pricey company that had, had gone big and we had just sold the company and all of a sudden boom um, Enron collapses and Enron was the largest client that we had for that software <laughs> so they went bankrupt the company went bankrupt all those shares that I thought I was going to retire on and buy a boat in the uh, Caribbean um, they completely disappeared, and here I was in my midlife crisis. I'm 40 years old, and I'm looking at myself going, what the hell are you going to do with your life now? Because nobody was hiring technology in Austin, Texas in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the internet was done at that point in time. It was, it's come roaring back now, but it's, it's taken a long time. So um, I was laying in bed one night, and I'm reading a newspaper article. I'm, I'm one of these old-timers that still reads a newspaper. Do you all know what that is? That's the paper thing that has all the words on it? I've seen one. With the crossword, right? Yeah, with the crossword. So I'm reading a story about a guy who's going to create another vodka. So you, now you've got Tito's in Texas. You've got Dripping Springs in Texas. And this guy's going to create a new one. And I turn to my wife. And I'm giving her shit because, uh, by the way, can I say shit on your show? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm giving my wife shit because she drinks a lot of vodka. And I said, why would anybody open up a distillery and make vodka? Why don't they make something that tastes good like bourbon? And she said, well, as much of that stuff as you drink, maybe you should. We'd probably save that. <laughs> So nice. the next thing you know, I'm in uh, Kentucky, and I'm taking the Kentucky bourbon trail. And I'd already done a little research, so I knew good and well that you could make bourbon anywhere in the United States you wanted to, but nobody had ever done it before outside of Kentucky. And I thought, why is that? And I thought, what better place than Central Texas to make good bourbon whiskey? Because we're loyal to the core in Texas. We like our brands. We, we fall in love with brands. We worship brands. And you, you see it from Tito's, you see it from Shiner Bach Beer, you see it from uh, Paps Brewery in the old days, you know. Uh, it, we have brands that develop here in Texas and they have loyal followers. So I thought, if I can really figure this shit out, then, then I, I, might, I, might, I might have a real business on my hands. Yeah, so, see, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I thought that when, when I first saw this, I thought, don't they only do bourbon in Kentucky? I thought maybe it was like scotch, you know, could only be yeah. brewed in Scotland and Providence. Champagne from Champagne. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody, everybody thought that. The first probably 100 liquor stores I walked into with a bottle of bourbon to pour for the proprietor, and I'd say, hey, you want to try some bourbon whiskey that I make here, here in Texas? And they'd say to me, you can't make bourbon in Texas. And they'd just tell me to get the hell out of the store. But now so once it, they started working for him, it started working. Yeah. Now it does have some rules around it, right? Though, what what it's is classified as bourbon? One of my oldest, dearest friends. He passed away a couple of years ago, but um, he was the guy that really got me excited about making bourbon. His name was Dave Pickerel. He was the master distiller at Maker's Mark in uh, in in Kentucky, and um, I called one morning and I said, hey, I'm going to be coming by for a tour of Maker's Mark. Can I sit down and talk to Dave Pickerel? I'm thinking there's not a chance in hell that I, the actual, the real Dave Pickerel is going to talk to me. And he spent an hour and 15 minutes answering my questions. And he taught me the rules of bourbon. And we call them the ABCs. A, it has to be American made. B, it has to use a new barrel every single time to be aged in. You can't reuse your barrels over and over again. C, it has to have at least 51% corn content in your mash bill. Our recipe is 74% corn, 15% soft red winter wheat, and 11% barley. Uh, D stands for distillation proof. When that bourbon comes off the still, it's in a form called white dog. And it looks a lot like vodka. Thank God it doesn't taste like vodka. But um, it has to come off that still at 160 proof or lower. If it's 160 proof or higher, you can go work for my friend Tito Beverage because you're no longer making bourbon whiskey. E is entry proof. When you enter that bourbon into the barrel, it's got to go into the barrel at 125 proof or lower. Um, so we add rainwater that we collect from all of our barns and buildings at the distillery, and we use that rainwater to proof the bourbon down to bring it down to 94 proof before it goes into a bottle. Um, and it's got to be 125 proof before it goes into a barrel. So the last, the, the, the F in the alphabet is fill, fill, 
fill proof, which is uh, got to be, it's got to be 80 proof or higher to be bourbon whiskey. And then G is the last letter in the alphabet, and that stands for genuine. You're not allowed to use any vanilla. You're not allowed to use any caramel coloring. No red dye number four. No red dye number seven. You can't put ethylene glycol in it, like a lot of whiskeys contain, you, for flavor and for, the, for that that bite. Um, bourbon's got to be pure, and it's got to be authentic. It's got to be real. When you guys, so I was reading, and uh, you had started out with corn from the panhandle. You were, yes, sir. Uh, you had a friend from Whole Foods that said the Panhandle had the best corn. And on your second trip up there, you go, oh, my God, it's white corn. Mm. And you kind of sort of worked right back. You went ahead and tried it. So are you still doing white corn? How prescient you would ask that question. Because one of the friends that I have up here in Colorado that I was hiking with all day yesterday was my friend who used to work for Whole Foods. And she was, I think, the procurement director. And I picked up the phone one day and I called her. This was when I was still in the planning stages of the business. And I said, Betsy, can you help me out? I want to buy the, the highest quality um, corn here in Texas. She's, she's buying from Texas farmers for, for all, her, her stores. And she recommended a, a place in uh, Dalhart, Texas called Deep Smith County Grain. And I'm sure it's changed names and hands a couple of times since then. But I got in my truck and I drove up there and I bought four bags of corn, four 50-pound bags of their, their panhandle uh, yellow dent corn. And I came back and I used those for practice batches when I was trying to work the still and trying to figure out how to do the cook process um, and to operate the still and the, the fermentation process. I was trying to get all of the chemical um, processes down pat. And so that's what I was using that corn for. And it got to a point where I was – distilling you know three three times a day i would do a, a one distillation in the morning one in the afternoon and one at night and i had these two guys uh, part-timers to come up and help me out and we would go in shifts i would do the first shift from from in, in the morning up until uh four o'clock and then another guy would take over the still and do the second shift and then another guy would do the night shift on the still so we were doing basically 24 hours a day distillations and so we needed a lot more corn and placed an order for a truck to bring it down from the panhandle for us. And it showed up and it was white corn instead of the yellow dent that I'd been doing all my distilling with. And I called up Death Smith County Grain and I said, hey, um, y'all sent me the wrong stuff. Can you come pick this up and then take it back to, to, to the panhandle and send me the, the yellow corn I've been using? And they said, that's going to cost more money than, than you're going to need to spend to make that happen. So they said, go ahead and just keep it and we'll send you another truckload. And sure enough, I did the I did the fermentation process. I did a number of cooks using that white corn, and all of a sudden, I was getting twenty percent bricks, which is the sugar content um, in the, the the mash, the, the sweet mash that we use to make our bourbon from. It's basically distiller's beer, is what it's called. But twenty one percent sugar content—that's unheard of in Kentucky. And and I, I kind of jumping out of my skin. I was so excited because every distillery I knew in Kentucky, the highest. Bricks level they could ever get was 13, 14%. And here I'm getting 21% off Texas corn. So, okay. So, obviously, the guys in Kentucky had to go, wait a minute, how are you doing this? Has anyone switched to white corn? Or is this exclusively Garrison Brothers? You know, they, they tried. I think <laughs> I made a lot of friends in Kentucky um, over the years. And I think they've 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 appreciated the fact that we've done it authentically. Um, we don't... We don't buy bourbon from somebody else and, and put a Texas label on it and say that we made it ourselves. And there's a lot of that shit going on all over the country right now. So 
I think I've met a lot of friends in Kentucky. No, none of them have ever shared whether they've used white corn versus yellow dent corn. Um, but most of it's feed grade up there in Kentucky. They, uh, it's the same stuff you feel to feed to your wildlife or your cows or your hogs. Um, because that's, that's how bourbon became what it is. It's easier to store a barrel of bourbon than it is a barrel of corn because you're going to get, you're going to get insects in it. You're going to get mold. You, uh, if there's too much wetness inside of it, the mold will kill it all. But if it's turned into bourbon, then you've got a product that you can sell and trade for other commodities. And that's how bourbon became what it is today in America. Nice. So do you, do you show reruns of Dukes of Hazzards? <laughs> That's really funny that you asked me that because I just got a phone call last week from a guy who is a chef out of Houston, and he uh, he, he I think John Schneider was Bo Duke. Anyway, yeah, he, he had just them. done a catering event for for John Schneider at, at his ranch, and they wanted to do an event a, a Garrison Brothers bourbon dinner at my distillery. So who knows? I may be able to meet Bo Duke pretty soon. That's awesome. So, the um, how long does it age in the barrel after you? Um, our first release um, was was just one year old. It was it was a baby. We called it the Young Gun. That was on Texas Independence Day, March second of two thousand and ten, and that was a thousand bottles that went out. And we we did it as a one year old. I hated doing it as a one year old, and the reason I hated it is that straight bourbon has to be aged a minimum of two years. And I wanted to make the best bourbon in the world when I started this operation. There was never any intent to make something cheap or make something that people might chug or, or, or drink like a shot. I want them to savor this bourbon, and I wanted it to be the best it could be. So I wanted to make it at least two years old before we, we bottled it. But then we heard about this guy um, who was going to release a whiskey in Texas before us, even though we'd been producing bourbon for, for, for years at that point in time. This guy was a startup. He just started his business, and he was going to release it into the marketplace, and and it was only like three months old, and that really pissed me off. So I said, you know, after all the hard work that I've put into this business, after all the blood, sweat, and tears that we've gone through, you know, numerous almost bankruptcies over the years, and this guy's going to get to market before I am, that pissed me off. So I released it anyway. Turns out he'd already sold a, a couple of cases to some uh, retailer in Waco anyway, so he still beat me to the punch. Huh. Is he still around? Uh huh. Well, he's not, but his 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 brand is. Okay. So, when you started out at the beginning, you're you're making this stuff, but you don't. I mean, so you make a batch, and then you don't even get to try your first batch for a year. Well, I would I would put the barrels out in in, in a. I bought a um, one of those metal uh, transatlantic shipping containers mm-hmm. for like three thousand bucks, and that was my first barrel bar. And I would put a barrel in it every single day of whatever batch I had made that day. And I would taste them. I had a set schedule where I would taste the barrels at three months, six months, nine months, and a year initially. And then we, uh, once we raised a little money from friends and family to, to expand the operation, we were able to uh, age it much longer. So today, every, every bottle of Garrison Brothers is a minimum of four years old. Most of the bourbon that's out there is anywhere from four to seven years old. Okay, cool. Uh, so, talk about your barrel barns. Uh, I was reading about how the Kentucky guys have to rely on the height that they stack the barrels for the heat. And, and you know, obviously in Texas, heat is not a problem. Right. Well, in any structure, 
heat rises to the top, right? Um, and especially if you've got a blazing sun shining down on the roof, that's going to be the hottest part of the barn. So any distiller who knows his business is going to pull barrels from the top of the barn that he wants to submit for awards competitions because those barrels are going to be thicker. They're going to have more of the sap that comes from the sugars that are in the wood. Um, they're just going to be tastier. They're also going to be a lot less empty because, I mean, a lot more empty because uh, the angel share uh, evaporation from the barrel is higher in the warehouse um, at higher points than it is at the lowest point in the warehouse. My lowest barrels in my rick house, in any of my rick houses, are always going to be the ones that that are very uh, low proof, lower proof, and they're going to have more liquid in them than the barrels that are at the top. Barrels at the top can be upwards of 140, 145 proof uh, after four or five years of aging, but they'll be only a quarter full. Uh, hence, the release of our cowboy bourbon that we do every single year. Right. That cowboy bourbon is coming from those best barrels, um, and it's delicious. It's very high proof. Yeah, I understand people line up at dawn <laughs> for your cowboys. The last Balmoraba release, I, I, I still have regret. We only we only released 500 bottles from the distillery. We, we sold, obviously, to distributors. We're, we're actually sold in 35 states today. So we sell it out to the distributors, and then we have the release party at the distillery where our fans and followers can come pick up their own bottles, usually a lot lower price than they can get them in retail. But we'll keep You're that safe with us. <laughs> so uh, the the one we had for Balmeray, which I think was May 28th, we had cars there at 4.45 in the morning. By 7 o'clock in the morning, we weren't even going to open our gates until 10 o'clock to let them in. By 7 o'clock in the morning, we had 329 cars and trucks lined up high Albert Road. And these guys are so awesome. They, they, they bring their own lawn chairs. They're playing poker out there in the middle of high Albert Road waiting for us to open the gates. And finally, the county sheriff, we were almost backed up to Highway 290, which is, is uh, right. you know, 1.7 miles away. And the cars were, were actually backing up on Highway 290. And the county sheriff came by and said, Garrison, you open those gates. And we, did it. <laughs> we sold all 504 bottles in about two hours. Nice. nice. So the barrels you use, I, I saw something too about those being, uh, you have to char them, but you could, you said you could only use them once, right? Right. We resell our barrels to uh, a lot of different uh, winemakers. Um, winemakers can use barrels. In fact, I talked to a guy named, his, his name's Chris, and he's over at Lost Draw Vineyards, and he's put a Sangiovese wine into Garrison Brothers barrels that he's been aging, I think, for six months. And my first question for him right out of the box was, because I know we gave him some really wet barrels, meaning that there was still a lot of bourbon in that wood. And I said, okay, what's what's the alcohol by volume of, of the wine? And he said, 16.9%. That's a strong wine. Nice. That means that there's a lot of bourbon in it. Nice. My yeah. wife likes Lost Straw. I just want to say she's familiar with that. I'm curious what that does to the flavor. It's interesting. Um Go ahead. So I was going to ask, what are the factors that that affect a particular dis, uh, stock? I mean, you mentioned heat. You mentioned uh, uh, the barrels. Uh, uh, do you rotate them? What are the factors? The winds are really picking up, guys, so I'm going to step inside here for just a second. Okay. Conversation there. Um, so the the 
summers in Texas um, have the greatest effect on our barrels, for sure, because the heat causes that bourbon to expand into the wood. And then when it gets cooler in the morning, it comes back out of the wood and it's extracting the sugars from the sap from the white American oak barrels. And those sugars are called diacol, oak lactone, vanilla, and isoeugenol, eugenol, um, purifurol. Those sugars are, are, are from the sap in the tree. And that sugar sweetens the bourbon. It gives it all of its caramel flavor, all of that butterscotch that you taste when you taste garish sugars. That's coming from the sap in the wood. That's the primary factor. About 15% of the taste of bourbon comes from the actual white dog. The white dog is the, you know, the bourbon before it's gone into a barrel. Okay. Cool. So um, what can you tell us about your Red Fridays? I saw something about that on your website. Red Friday is um, I have a bunch of military guys that work for me. They, they, they seem to work harder than the rest of the world, and they're, they're incredibly well-disciplined. And um, I uh, am the first in four generations not to go into the Navy. So maybe I have a little bit of regret for not having served my time like everybody else did. So I've always hired veterans. And one of the things that we have on a given Friday, on every Friday, is what we call Red Friday. And Red Friday stands for Remember Everyone Deployed. And we all have red T-shirts on. And every single time we're bottling and, and someone comes through the bottling line, we will raise a toast and raise it up to the veterans who are serving all over the world for keeping us safe here in America. Nice. Nice. I, and I also read about you have a volunteer bottling uh, program. Yeah, we sure do. It's a great bunch of people, yeah. too. They're, they're, they're nuts. Uh, they come from all over the United States. We've been people that come in from Canada to volunteer bottle with us. It's um, it's a great time. We start about 8.30 in the morning. Uh, we feed them breakfast, which is almost always biscuits and gravy because um, we're healthy out there, you know. And, uh, <laughs> they're, they're just wonderful people. They're so excited to be there. They'll bring a, they'll come in groups of five or six, and they stay and they work until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And every half hour or so, we give them a shot of courage just to keep them motivated throughout the day. And it's, it's, it's something to watch because you, you get there in the morning and everybody's quiet and everybody looks a little nervous and they're all staring at the other people that are in the room. And you'll have this one guy that's got tattoos all over his body and this other guy's got piercings in his ears and nose. And everybody's a little reluctant. They're not real sure what to do with all these freaks. And by noon, they're all dancing with each other and exchanging phone numbers and exchanging email addresses and making dinner plans for the evening. So... It's, it's, it's one of the things that we do that I love the most, and I miss it so much. Uh, COVID has, has ruined for us one of the greatest aspects of our business, which was the camaraderie and the friendships and the followers that we have and telling legendary stories. Every once in a while, somebody will stand up on the table, the bottling line, line table, and tell a story, a great story. And that's what bourbon's all about. And I really miss having people there at the distillery. All my staff right now is doing all the bottling for us because we just don't want to have my staff exposed to anybody that might have COVID. How many bottles do you process a week? <laughs> it depends how drunk the No, I mean, um, <laughs> the crew is really good. We, we typically shoot to do at least 1,000 bottles a day. Um, and what that means is you're, you're putting the cork in it. You're writing the data information on the, on the side of the bottle with a silver Sharpie. You're dipping the bourbon into the wax so that it seals that neck of the bottle. And you're putting a tear strip on it, which we, we use deer skin lace for our tear strips. 
and it's 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 monotonous, but it's fun and it's therapeutic. It's, it's, it's hard to explain unless you've done it. All right, well, we'll be out there yeah. as soon as we can. I hope so. Speaking of out there, um, for any of the listeners who don't know, High is on the um, right between Johnson City and uh, Fredericksburg, correct? That is correct. It's Ten miles past Johnson City, um, on the way from Austin to Fredericksburg. Right. So, how did you wind up in High? Um, I have some old friends who have a a small farm in Stonewall, Texas, and Stonewall, if you. If you've ever been there, it's this real quaint, quiet, you know, ranching community. And they had a little place that was right there on the Pedernales. And we used to go out there. My entire family would go out there. We'd spend a weekend with them. Um, and it was always the same weekend. It was the third weekend in June, which happens to be the Stonewall Peach Parade and Rodeo. Uh, Stonewall is, is literally two miles from high. And it was such a great time. I mean, it's the greatest slice of Americana. That rodeo, you got the, you got the boys in their tight Wrangler jeans with the Copenhagen cam stuck in the back pocket. And they got their hats on. They got their big old belt buckles and they're showing off the girls and all the girls are in the Daisy Dukes and they've got the plaid shirts on and there's the rodeo peach queens and they're just all dolled up in these beautiful um, dresses. And there's just a, it's a slice of heaven. And, and I always knew that if I ever bought some land or if I ever was to retire, I wanted to be somewhere near Stonewall, Texas, so I could participate in that every year and, and get to know those people. These are the these are the types of folks that pull over on the side of the road and they help you change a tire. They're um they're salt of the earth. We've had some eighteen wheelers come out to our distillery and drive off the road into the grass and get stuck in you know delivering barrels or delivering bottles and within an hour, three tractors will show up and they'll pull that sucker out. You know, it's just, it's a great community. It's a friendly community, very conservative um, and, and old fashioned. Cool. Well, you certainly sound like a native Texan. Tell us about your early years. <laughs> sure. I actually wasn't born in Texas. My wife is fifth generation Texan, but I was born, I was a, a Navy brat and um, my dad was in, in, in the service. He was in submarines. And he was a nav- navigator for, for a submarine. So I was born in Bremerton, Washington. And then my dad left the submarine, uh, left the Navy, retired from the Navy, and he went to Harvard Business School. And so I spent my early years up in Boston, Massachusetts. And then we moved. His first job after he got out of, of business school was in Houston, Texas. So I grew up in Houston. Um, I was in Houston from basically the second grade all the way up until high school. And then went to high school in Dallas because my parents divorced and split up. And I ended up in Dallas as opposed to Houston. Uh, graduated from a school in Dallas called the Episcopal School of Dallas. I was in the first class there. And immediately uh, transferred to the University of Texas for, for my college education. And once I got to Austin, I said, oh, shit, this place is great. I, yeah. Nobody's getting me out of here. I graduated from the University of Texas in 1989. And moved to New York City. I did three years in New York City. And then I get this call from this girl named Nancy who says, hey, I was at the University of Texas the same time you were. And a sorority sister of mine, Kappa Kappa Gamma Sorority, said I should look you up because I'm doing a lot of business in New York. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, first of all, she's from Texas, so she's probably smoking hot. Second of all, she's in a Kappa Kappa Gamma Sorority, so she's probably smoking hot and rich. And third, she's got the cojones to call me up and ask me out on a blind date, sight unseen, when I'm 25 years old. And I had some serious issues when I was 25 years old. So we went out. I fell madly in love and moved back to Texas six months later. Oh, that's awesome. 
So, yeah, you're one of the lucky few who, who actually graduated and got to stay here. I mean, usually everybody's fighting to stay here, but they have to give up and go somewhere else to get a job. You know, it, it used to be not as much anymore. Yeah, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? Yep. Well, I was, I was, uh, I was on the uh, six-year plan at the University of Texas because I didn't want to leave. Why rush it? Heck, yeah. I'd go you back know? and if they let me. <laughs> So, you know, if we only knew that our time at college was going to be the best times of our lives, I don't think we would have worked so hard. Yeah, nobody told us that part. Yeah. So, do you do you feel like being uh, in high is an advantage for what you're doing? Um, it, it's definitely an advantage. Uh, distilling is a very dangerous um, uh, industry because you're dealing with high proof alcohol. It's flammable. Mm-hmm. Um, your electrical outlets all need to be explosion proof. Um, there's a fire code in almost every major city that you have to build your structure to that code. And that code is really strict for distilleries because they have to have sprinklers all in the building. You have to have enough water in the building to put out a major fire if it was to happen. And it has to be, it has to happen quickly. They, they make you overbuild your security systems, um, in case of a fire. And so in the country, there's no code. <laughs> There's no inspector. There's nothing you have to, you don't have to follow the rules um, until you get to 11 employees. But once you get to 11 employees, then you're under OSHA guidelines and you have to meet OSHA guidelines. And I'm proud to say, I think we're probably the first craft distiller in America that has, has, has this year, because of COVID, has, has become OSHA compliant. And it took a lot of hard work, but what the hell else are we going to do, right? We can't, yeah. we can't sell. We can't we can't produce bourbon because because we need our our production team on the bottling line. So we decided we'd get OSHA compliant. We busted our asses and did it. Nice. So talk about the process of being the first legal bourbon distiller. Obviously, you had to go through the government, and that 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 would phase a mortal man. The, the reality is when I started this, I was one of the first ones. Um, we were the first whiskey distillery in Texas history, that, as far as anyone knows. Um, and, and it was a, a different age. There, there, there weren't lawyers accustomed to, to dealing with distilleries and getting distilleries the correct paperwork or permits that they needed to have. So you have to start first with the federal agency that, got, that monitors um, distilled spirits, and that's called the Tax and Trade Bureau out of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Tax and Trade Bureau was formerly the TTB. Um, I'm sorry, it, it is the TTB, but it was formerly known as the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco, um, which got a pretty bad reputation after the, the crash compound situation and, and, and a lot of other Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco <laughs> disasters. So that was the first organization that I had to get a permit from. And that took, I probably submitted my paperwork to them about 14 times. I did it all myself. I didn't hire a lawyer. I didn't have the money to hire a lawyer. I was, I was building the business off credit cards just like Tito did. And so, uh, one day it came in the mail, my permit approved and with a stamp on it from the federal government. I went, Oh shit. It's, this is really, this is really happening. And then the next part of the process, once you have the federal permit, then you can apply for the state permit. And I didn't know how that was going to go because I knew, the vodka operations, vodka operations are totally different from a whiskey distillery. You can, you can call 1-800-VODKA and a tank or trailer will show up with vodka in it 
tomorrow uh, if you want to today. It's real easy to get into the vodka business. With a bourbon whiskey distillery, you have to have cookers, you have to have fermentation tanks, you have to have pumps, you have to have um, hydrometers to measure the proof of everything. You have to keep an unbelievable amount of records. And I knew that I was going to have trouble over at the TABC, Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission, because they had to approve my plant just like the feds had approved my plant. And I'll never forget the, late, the, the lady that came out from the federal department. She said, I've never been to a whiskey distillery before. What should I ask you? <laughs> I don't know what you should ask me. Just tell me I'm approved. And she did. But the TABC, I actually took the, uh, the former director of the TABC out to lunch. We went to the county line and got some barbecue. And I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to be pushing the TABC and getting pushed back when I applied for my permit. His name was Alan Steen. He actually works for Glazers today. And Alan was very helpful. He was incredibly helpful. I, he he put the right people in touch with me. He showed me how to apply for a label approval through the TABC. And he was actually very helpful. So I was very pleased with the TABC helping me get through it. I think it probably took two years to get all the permits in place so that I could actually legally operate a still. And during that two years, I may have operated a still illegally, but you know the statute of limitations should should have run out by now. <laughs> yeah. So you were you were just practicing your craft up to that point. Yeah. Well, how else do you do it? It's it's you got to learn. It's illegal to own or operate a still in America unless you have a federal permit. Well, how do you get a federal permit without knowing how to operate a still? It's a catch the government. Yeah. You must be the only person I've ever uh, heard have a positive experience with the TABC. <laughs> you know, um, the current leadership over there is sensational. And the TABC's hands are tied because our lawmakers write the legislative code. And they often do so without considering the impact of that legislative code. And it can... It, it can be dangerous and it can be costly, and it's it's frustrating. TABC doesn't even know the, their own rules. They don't they don't even know how a distillery should operate, and yet they're asked to enforce that. Makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, so I think the the good people over there. We work very closely with them. We formed the Texas Whiskey Association. We formed the Texas Distilled Spirits Association, and we work very closely with TABC to try to bring some common sense to to alcohol distribution in Texas. But th think of it this way. The, the best example of, of how nonsensical it is, is that, did you know that you can order marijuana online and have it shipped to your home? Mm. No. Didn't I know that. You can. It's easy to do in many states and many countries. Uh, but in Texas, in Texas, you can't even order a bottle of distilled spirits and have it shipped to your home. You have to go to a liquor store and make the purchase at the liquor store. And I can't ship you a bottle. If you were living in Nebraska, which is, a, oh, I'm sorry, not, not a good example. Let's say uh, Ohio. We don't distribute our bourbon in Ohio today. So you would go online and you would just place an order for it and we would ship you the bottle to Ohio. Well, that's illegal all across the United States of America. And it makes absolutely no sense. And the only reason it is illegal is because the retailers want to make sure that they get their 35% cut every single time that they sure. sell it. Sure. Yeah, that's like the auto dealerships in Texas. Exactly. Yeah. So when did you first taste bourbon? When did you have your first taste of bourbon? You know, I, I was drinking bourbon in high school. All my friends drank beer and margaritas. But I, I was a W.L. Weller 12-year-old 
kid and I'd mix it with Coke back in those days or Diet Coke or club soda. Today, all I drink is, is bourbon and soda or bourbon meat. Um, so I've always been kind of a bourbon geek and, you know, I collected bottles in the days, little antique bottles that I had a whole shelf of all these antique bottles that I'd buy it at, um, um, flea markets. Uh, flea markets. Yeah. And so I had all these collect- collections of bottles and there was one particular bottle that looks just like mine. Coincidentally, there was one, it was the second bottle that Jack Daniels ever released back in the 1800s, I believe. And that was the that was the design that came for the Garrison Brothers bottle. Nice. Uh, so I do some work with Rob Cordes, who's just a fabulous guy. He was telling me about your single barrel program, which sounded absolutely fascinating. Yeah, Rob Cordes has been uh, my best friend, one of my best friends for a very long time. We used to have our own ad- advertising agency back in the days that we, we did some work for a lot of clients in Austin. And we've always worked really well together. It's, it's, it's this strange um, ability to, to, to not even talk about a project, but still understand what the other person's thinking. Um, I say, Rob, let's do it this way. And he, he gets it and he puts it on paper and it looks beautiful just the way I imagined it. So he's all, we've always had a great relationship. The single barrel program, um, I was in New York City and I was working with my distributor up there and we had gone from liquor store to liquor store to liquor store to liquor store. And suddenly my phone rings while we're having lunch at this McDonald's up in, in Harlem and my phone rings and I look down at the phone and it says David B. Trone. And I went, wow, I know that name. Oh my God, that's the president of Total Wine and More, the largest liquor retailer in the country. At the time, I think they had 70 stores. Now they have well over 300 stores. And Mr. Trone, I, I picked up the phone. I said, hi, Mr. Trone. How may I help you? It's Dan Garrison. Garrison says, yes, sir. I want you to do a private label bourbon for me. Um, I've tasted your, your juice, and it's absolutely fantastic. And I want you to call it, what's, what's the name of your son? And I said, my son is Sam Garrison. So we'll call it Sam's Bourbon, and we'll sell it at all my stores. Um, but I'm going to need you to give me a bottle for about $14 a piece. Um, that way I can mark it up to $28 and make a good profit off of it. And I said, Mr. Drone, I don't do that. There's no way I could create a bottle of Garrison Brothers bourbon or my son's bourbon or whatever you want to call it for $14. The ingredients alone that go into the bourbon are $14 per bottle. And I said, I got another idea, though. We've been talking about doing a single barrel program where you and your team from Total Wine and More might come to high and taste a whole bunch of different barrels. And when you find the ones you like, we'll ship those barrels or all the liquid that comes from those barrels to all of your stores. And we'll call it Garrison Brothers Single Barrel. And he said, fantastic. Uh, I'll have it set up, and I'm going to need 300 barrels by by next month. And I went, oh, shit. Yeah. And I picked up the phone, and I called my master distiller, and I said, we got to get 300 barrels to Total Wine and More. Do we, have, do we even have that much in our inventory? My master distiller started pumping barrels out. We worked night and day to continue to fill barrels so that we could get the old ones out. And the next thing you know, we had Garrison Brothers Single Barrel Bourbon in, in all Total Wine and More stores across the United States, and we still do today. Uh, it's been a great partnership with, with, with them. We also have great relationships with Twin Liquors right there based in Austin. Uh, Specs out of Houston's fantastic to work with. So we, um, we've been very lucky to have some retailers that have supported the business along the way. Fantastic. So being a longtime Austin resident, this is where we're going to find out a little more about you here. 
Um, so what's been your favorite Austin experience since you've been here since college? You've had a few. Probably, probably the trail, the Town Lake Trail. I moved um, my first apartment in Austin when I was going to, to the University of Texas was at Infield at Exposition. So I was, I was nice. you know, maybe – maybe a mile from the town lake trail. And I was a big runner in those days. I, I would run five, six, seven times a week and was blogging, you know, 35, 40 miles a week back then. So I spent so much time on the trail. And when I lost that job in technology, the software job, when, when Enron collapsed, one of the things that I was, I was running marathons at the time. I ran three marathons before I decided to quit running. And um, I was always down at the trail training for these marathons. And it, kind of pissed me off i'd run by a trash can and there was just trash all over the place it, it was clear that the parks department hadn't emptied the trash in, in, in weeks um there were trailheads that had no signage showing you where to go there were um invasive weeds and trees all over town lake formerly <laughs> formerly town lake now yeah. ladybird lake um and i was ticked off and my friend will win happened to be the mayor at the time and I went to Will and I said, hey, I think I can raise some money to do some good things for the trail, to create kind of a Central Park Conservancy for the Town Lake Trail. And I had a lot of time because I had no job and I had no money coming in. So um, I formed this thing called the Town Lake Trail Foundation, which today is called the Trail Foundation. And we raised a couple of million dollars and we started rebuilding restrooms along the trail. We started doing um, volunteer cleanup projects. We would, we would, we would. Uh, plant gardens all the way along the trail for you know people to enjoy and everybody that would run by would look over at us we had our, our town lake trail foundation t-shirts on and they'd drop money in a bucket while we're out there planting things everybody wanted to that, that was austin to a t everybody yeah. loves the trail the trail is a meeting point for everybody no matter what your race is ethnicity color of your skin you're, you're whether you're liberal or whether you're democrat or whether you're republican none of that matters on the trail and so I've always loved the Town Lake Trail. And when I think of Austin, that's what I think. Nice. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, that, and that's kind of yeah. rewarding to have done that work on it. It is. It's great to see things like the uh, the Riverside Boardwalk, the boardwalk that runs over, over um, east of Congress. That was a dream of mine. Oh, my God. I I worked for seven years to make that happen, and it finally happened, and it was, it was miraculous. Excellent. Joel, you had you – were... Yeah, I was a, okay. I've, I've had several jobs as a salesman, right? What was it like with your first Bob walking into the first liquor stores saying, Hey, I've made this. What do you think? So the corruption of this industry is everywhere. It's, I mean, if you, if you think back to prohibition, the distilling industry came out of prohibition and, and, and the laws were put in place to assure that the bedlam of, of prohibition didn't happen again. So one of the laws, for example, in Texas is if I want to go into a liquor store and I want to present my bottle to the owner of the liquor store, I have to be accompanied by, by, by my, my distributor. Well, my distributor doesn't want to sell Garrison Brothers. He wants to sell 45 cases of Jim Bean because he gets a commission on that. So trying to get the distributor to allocate one of their individuals to accompany you into the store to make the sale was a huge pain in the ass and and ridiculous. So um, I pretended I didn't know, I didn't know the rules and I went in and did it anyway. And 
I think Tito had beat me to that. Tito had been doing that a long time. He'd been walking into liquor stores and saying, hey, try my vodka. And um, it, he, no question, Tito started it all. And I wouldn't have been able to walk into those liquor stores and promote my brand if Tito hadn't done what he did, you know, five years before me. So he's become a good friend over the years, and, and I really admire what he's done. But the sale itself was difficult because my bourbon is 79 to $129 a bottle. It's expensive stuff. We use the highest quality grains. We use the highest quality barrels. We, we, there's, there's, it's all done by hand. It's not an automated procedure. Everything that's coming out of Kentucky today is automated. It's all mechanical. They don't even have people on their bottling line anymore. It's all done by machines. And so my bourbon's really expensive. And people would just laugh at me. You're going to make bourbon in Texas. You're going to try to charge me $79 for it? Well, we showed them now because we won every award out there. We've won. We've been in the American Whiskey of the Year four times in Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible, um, which is kind of the most prestigious award. We won double gold at uh, at the um, San Francisco Wine and Spirits Competition, which is the most prestigious one in the world. And we've, we've really we've, we've made a great product. And once people taste Garrison Brothers, it's really difficult to step back to their Kentucky bourbon they used to be drinking because it just tastes different. It's got three to four times the amount of the sugars from the sap in the wood than any Kentucky bourbon. Nice. Uh, so, so what's, uh, what do you do on your time off around here? Uh, well, this week I'm in Colorado hiking with my family and friends, which is awesome. Um, I really don't get time off as, as such. I mean, I, I own the business, so I feel like I'm obligated to be there uh, just about every single day. I try to take Sundays off, but it never really works out that way. Um, part of the process is, is getting out and selling it. We've just expanded during COVID from 26 states in America to 35 states. So there are now nine new states that I need to get out and I need to visit and I need to meet all the liquor store owners and I need to shake hands with the bartenders that are really serving our product and I need to tell them all about it. I need to pour them a sample and that's the sales part of running your own business. You got to be willing to go do that and if you're not willing to put your boots out on the streets, then nobody's going to be even be aware of your product. So I'm going to do that and I'm actually leaving on Saturday for a basic four-week sales trip where I'll be going to Nebraska, which is a new state for us, Oklahoma, which is a new state for us, New Mexico, if they'll let me in without quarantining. And then I'm going to do a whole trip down to the West coast of Texas and then to Louisiana after that. So I'll be on the road for about 40 days. selling bourbon. And you know what? Do you have- I don't mind that. That's okay with me. It's the greatest job in the world. I get to meet new people every single day and have a drink of good bourbon with them. That's awesome. Nobody else gets to do that. So, so am I sad that I don't have time off or hobbies? Hell no. I love what I do. Nice. So do you have field reps or do you uh, rely on local distributors in all these 35 states? All the distributors have reps but they really don't pay much attention to the smaller brands like mine. Um, the Diageos of the world, the Pernod Ricards of the world, the Moe Hennessy's of the world. Those are the big liquor companies across the world that, that uh, pay money to the distributors to get their products slotted into the right stores or the right bars. And we can't do that. We can't, we can't compete with those kind of advertising and marketing budgets. Um, we're doing this all by ourselves. We're, we're, we're fiercely independent. We tend to stay that way. So um, it, 
I think I lost track of your question. <laughs> well, well, I was wondering, how do you, do you have field reps? Do you have yes, people yes. on your payroll that are out there pushing your product? We do. We have uh, about four people in California right now. We have two people in Florida that represent our brand and only our brand, and they work directly for me. Um, and we have about 10 people in Texas who are out pushing the brand. We're probably going to put people in New York, um, our own people in New York um, in the next year or two. New York is a big bourbon market, so we want to be there. Um, in addition to my team that goes out and does the selling, we have reps that work for the different distributors in every state. And these reps do call on accounts, but it's very rare that they're going to call on an account to sell Garrison Brothers because they've got 20 other bottles of, of, of liquor in their bag that they have to sell. They have to get a quota on or they don't get paid. So they're not right. going to pull Garrison Brothers out because there's no incentive for them to do so unless they're just equally proud of the brand like we are. And that's we've been very successful in that regard as well. People love to sell Garrison Brothers if they work for a distributor because it's an easy sell. Cool. Excellent. So I know you've got a hard out coming up here pretty quick, so I wanted to try to squeeze in a couple more questions. Um, what has been the biggest change you've seen in Austin since you've lived here? Other than traffic. <laughs> so I used to joke that Austin was never going to be weird enough for me. Um, the the whole, all the characters and the celebrities and the, the, the weirdness, I mean, uh, our, our, our politicians, our, um, our culture, our bars, our artists, our TV shows. Austin has so many crazy, cool things happening there. And I've always said that it's not weird enough. It's, it's still not weird enough for me. But you know what? It's weird enough for me now. And I'd rather be in high Texas uh, picking bourbon than I would be on the streets of Austin today. Because, frankly, I'm afraid I'll get run over by a, 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 one of those um, – Scooters. <laughs> um, Austin has grown so much, and, and you got to give a lot of credit to to um, our our political leaders in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s for for making it what it is today. Now it's an economic powerhouse. I mean, we've got cranes on 15 buildings downtown today, and it just feeds on itself. And and my biggest fear is that we're going to ruin that. Um, by not, by not taking care of the city. Um, uh, the, the homeless situation is completely out of control and, and, and nobody seems to really be taking a hard stand doing something about it. Um, crime is up and it's up for a reason and everybody knows what it is, but nobody wants to talk about it. And that kind of pisses me off. I used to feel very safe in Austin. I've never locked my doors in Austin, but I've got people coming into my backyard and going to the restroom in my backyard. And I don't know who they are or where they came from, but we got to do something about that or this COVID thing is going to, going to, it's going to become a real threat if it's, if it stretches to the homeless population and who knows how you control it after that. Yeah. So I'm scared for Austin, to be honest. I love Austin. I love Austin so much, but I'm scared for Austin right now. Well, speaking of weird, the, uh, what is the weirdest thing you've seen since you've lived in Austin? The weirdest thing I've seen. I was working at a bank building on the fourth floor downtown at the intersection of 6th Street and um, I guess it's Guadalupe. Had taller. Yeah. And um, 
So I'm working in this bank building and I get off work at the end of the day. And this, this was, <laughs> this was actually when I was in college, I was doing an internship with a law firm and I walked out and I'm in my suit and tie. I was always dressed up for the damn job. And I walk outside and 300 bicycles go past me and everybody on the bicycle is completely naked. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I went, I love this town. This is, where else you get to see that? Yeah. No, that's, that's a lot of fun. I mean, that's definitely one of the advantages of living here is, is you'll see something every once in a while that's just, wow, that just blew my mind. So, yep. so, uh, lastly, uh, we'll finish up with this question. Uh, if somebody were to want to move to Austin, what advice would you give them other than don't? <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, have a trust fund <laughs> and drink a lot of gears. Have a trust fund. I don't understand it. These, these apartments downtown, these condos downtown, they're renting for $4,000 a month. Yeah. $4,000. How, how do you, if you're 23 years old or 24 years old and just entering the workforce, how can you justify that? Unless you have a pretty nice trust fund. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's going to be one of the, interesting things about this COVID thing is where are people going to live because they don't want to live tight, tightly packed together anymore. And it looks, you know, you don't have a choice here if you're young. Yeah. It's scary. It's frightening. And the, the devastation that this situation, this pandemic is wreaking on the restaurant industry right now. I have so many friends of mine who bar, are bartenders that I've met through the liquor business. And, and so many of them are out of work right now. And, and many of them are literally living in a camper, um, parked at, at up in Colorado or at some state park, uh, just trying to survive. Um, and I, I fear for them because uh, so many young people are in the restaurant business and they're not, they're not being taken care of right now. Yeah, I know. That's a shame. Well, Dan, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I want to let you be respectful and let you get to your dinner plans. Enjoy the rest of your uh, stay up in Colorado. We're, we're jealous Thanks, of the God. temperatures. Yeah, it's nice and cool up here. I think it's like 62 outside. Yeah, I'm just rubbing it in. You know that, right? Thank you. Thank you. That sucks. But <laughs> Joel, good to talk to you. Bob, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. No Thank problem. you, Dan. Thank Take you. Care. And we'll Bye-bye. see you next time on the Trail to Austin.